are in the middle of a sermon series throughout the book of Acts, and so with that in mind, I want to ask you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. Yes, I'm serious. Uh, I want to actually preface where we are in Acts by looking back on a parable that uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus told in Matthew chapter, that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 13. So turn there in your Bibles or in your app, Matthew 13. Uh, take a look at uh, verse 24 is where we're going to start. It's called the parable of the weeds. And if you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word and follow along silently as I read aloud Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. This is what the word of God says. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now skip down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered and said, well, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, again, although we're working our way through Acts, I thought it best to begin by reading through the parable we just looked at from Matthew 13. Uh, and I want you to take a look at that because I want to point out some things to keep in mind as we dive into where we are in Acts chapter 8. So take a look at Matthew 13, verse 24. You see what happens. A man is said to have sown good seed in a field. So the seed is good. But verse 25, another one comes along, someone who is referred to as his enemy, and plants seeds that will bring forth weeds and he does this while uh his his men are sleeping so we have the good seed that is planted that brings forth wheat and the bad seed that is planted that bring forth weeds not weed weeds so the enemy comes along and plants this seed among people among them and then one of the servants goes to the man and says how can this how can this be there's 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 wheat and there's weeds how can this be didn't you plant good seeds and the man says i did but someone else an enemy of ours has done this and so the servant says oh well you want us to go and gather up? Like, we can, we can fix this. We can clean this up. It's not a big deal. Pick up the weeds. And he says, no, don't do that. Because if you do that, you're going to run the risk of pulling up the good stuff. Let's just let it all grow. Let it all grow. 
And when it comes time to harvest, I'll just tell those who go and glean, who go and take these, to make sure that they first take up the weeds and place them inside, place them separately so they can be burned, and then they can gather up the good wheat. Now, it may come as a surprise to you, what with me being from Queens, that I don't know a ton about agriculture. And my first several years in Kentucky proved that. And every once in a while, I still prove that. But the things that went through my mind when I first moved out of the city uh, are just kind of mind-boggling. Um, and there's, like, tons of stories. I could bore you with the stories or entertain you with the stories. I remember when we were looking for a house, and uh, the realtor uh, said that, uh, well, it's not finished. They have to come back and finish grading the land. I've never heard this term before, and I just remember thinking, honestly, that as the land was, I'd give it a solid B, maybe a B plus. Now, I'm not trying to be cute or funny. Literally thought, this is like some analysis of the land. There must be a grading system. I guess they're going to improve upon it, but I think it's a solid B now. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I just don't know much about life. I certainly don't know much about agriculture outside of a city. But I would think that it would take a pretty keen eye for one to tell the difference between seeds. Certainly, some seeds look radically different from each other, I'm sure. But my guess is some seeds, at least at first glance, look similar or maybe exactly alike. This much, however, I know. Give it a little time and you'll see what kind of seed it is. Because as you plant the seed, the seed will bring forth fruit, the seed will grow and if you said it was an apple tree, but it's really a lemon tree, it's going to produce lemons, it's not going to produce apples. If you said it was wheat, but it really produces weeds, it's obviously not a seed that would bring forth wheat, etc., etc. So with that in mind, turn to Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. As we see, uh, perhaps this, you might say this parable lived out in real time. So look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. Remember, the parable never happened parable was just a story. This is just a for instance. But Acts chapter 8 and verse 4 really did happen. It's a historical narrative, the book of Acts. And so Luke is writing to us an account of the things that did actually occur. So take a look at Acts chapter 8 beginning in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Verse 14. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom, whom I lay my hands 
may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, remember when we look back at that parable, the parable of the, uh, of the weeds, it was Jesus' disciples that came to him and asked for an explanation of the parable. Three of whom would have been Philip, Peter, and John. Those three are sitting here right now. They would have heard that parable in Matthew 13, and they are now here in Acts chapter 8. And they would have been able to see what was going on and hopefully tie it in and think, Jesus told us something about this. What they're seeing happen in this account reflects the parable that we read in the first place. So hopefully you'll see that. But take a look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 5. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Philip is trying to make disciples by telling them about Jesus. And among them was a man named Simon who was a magician and he takes a particular interest in Philip because he's seeing things done that are obviously far superior to whatever tricks he had previously performed. So Simon had a following. In fact, he had quite a following because they didn't just think his tricks were cool. I mean, look at verse 9. They thought he was somebody great. They actually thought he was a deity. Look at verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And so verse 11 says they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But I want you to see the change that takes place between verse 11 and verse 12. I want you to see that in your Bible. So take a look. In verse 11 it says they paid attention to him because uh, of the, the way that he amazed them with his magic. And verse 12 starts out by saying, but when they believed Philip. Okay, so like, but something changed. When they believed Philip, it was different. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Why would there be this difference that takes place between what they were following, which was Simon the magician, and all of a sudden the fact now that they follow Philip? Well, a couple of things. If you look back in Acts 8 and verse, uh, say verse 7, they're talking about the signs that Philip was doing. And it says, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Philip was doing things that were obviously very different from Simon. Simon might be pulling a rabbit out of his hat or a coin out of some kid's ear, but he's not exactly making paralyzed people walk. He's not exactly calling out unclean spirits from people who had been demon-possessed for their entire life. Biblical miracles, true Biblical miracles always blow other tricks out of the water. I mean, watching Benny Hinn or some other false prophet scream the word fire and people fall over might be amusing for a little while. But when you compare it to the real, unleashed, saving power of God at work among his people, there's simply no comparison. There's no comparison to what God can do in the lives of people like you and like me to what another false prophet can do that might be amusing for a little while. And Simon couldn't light a candle to what the word of God was doing through Philip. And so we see that difference shown to us in verse 12, right? When they believed Philip, 
And look at verse 12. It's not about the signs. It says they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. And verse 13 says Simon also believed, was also baptized, and stuck with Philip. Now, again, I'm assuming it's sometimes hard to tell two seeds apart, especially for me. A seed is a seed. They look alike. Thus far, Simon and the rest of the Samaritans, the rest of those Christians, they look alike, right? Both heard Philip. Both were interested in his signs. Both heard the gospel. Both were baptized and both continued to walk with Philip. They look a lot alike. So anyway, what ends up happening is the apostles in Jerusalem hear this. They hear, wait a minute, the Samaritans of all people, the Samaritans have heard the gospel and believed. This is hard to believe, but also an awesome thing to believe, that even the Samaritans, right, that's what people would have thought, even the Samaritans, these half-breeds that have been enemies of the Jews for a long time, they didn't get along. That's why Jesus tells an amazing parable called the parable of the good Samaritan. That's why the woman at the well in Samaria is an amazing story of Jesus' compassion towards not just, not just any person but a woman, and not just any woman but a woman of Samaria. It's an amazing thing that the Samaritans would believe in the gospel. Because people would have thought of them as the marginalized, as the most unreachable. It's like surely God loves all kinds of people and maybe the Samaritans, but probably not. But I think we, he does. But prob- like, It would have been just the hardest thing for people to believe. So Peter and John, probably wanting to check out the veracity of the claim, but probably also very excited about it, probably a combination of the two, go down and they want to see the Samaritans and they also want to pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit because thus far they had not. And so they go down to Samaria uh, and they pray. And then they lay their hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to take a little bit of time, just a little sidestep, and explain uh, perhaps what this is and what this isn't. Hopefully this will be clarifying and not further confusing. Lots of times, uh, actually, and in the meantime, do me a favor, turn to Romans chapter 8. Because I'm going to refer to a verse uh, in a moment on that. But keep your finger in Acts 8. What we see happening in Acts chapter 8 is... The gospel being preached, people believing, but we're told they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so we could make the mistake, and it is a mistake, of thinking that the common thing to happen to people is for people to believe and then to later receive the Holy Spirit. But those are two separate events. And oftentimes there are people, even modern denominations now, that teach that those are two separate events. Sometimes they'll call it baptism of the Holy Spirit, that this is a separate event that happens days, weeks, months, even years after somebody can be converted, and that they're two separate things. But to believe that and to understand that would be an error because it's taking out of consideration a couple of things. Number one, we've said this a couple of times, the vast majority of the text of the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's describing something that happened in the first century church. But just to see that as what happened is not to then say, oh, then this must be the way that it happens every single time. So this is a descriptive text of how the Holy Spirit fell upon these Samaritan believers. And he came through the laying on of hands from Peter and John. But that's not to say that that's the only way the Holy Spirit comes into people's lives. And in fact, the vast majority of the book of Acts, the vast majority of the New Testament, that's not how the Holy Spirit enters people's lives to begin with. The Holy Spirit is there at conversion. Acts has a transitional nature to it. And I'll try to explain it this way. 
I used to run track, run fast, turn left. And I was on a relay team, and I was usually number three or four on a four-by-four relay team. And we would run with a baton. Before the race began, I would find my mark. I think I walked back seven paces, I think. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven large paces and saw where that was on the track. And then I would come over here back to my spot, and I would get ready to run, and I would look back upside down like this with my hand out. And I would look back at that spot because when my teammate hit that spot, what was I going to do? I was going to take off running. Because if I didn't, he was going to plow into me and knock me down. Maybe that happened once. So I had to look back. When he, and you have to take off running as fast as you can because I have to run his speed or roughly his speed because he's going to come in. I don't want him to slow down at all because it's a timed event. So he's going to come running up to me. And what he's going to do is he's going to take the baton, and he's going to place it in my hand. But I'm not looking back, right? I'm continuing to run, and when I feel that baton in my hand, I know I've got it, and then I can just run with it. Now, for a moment, maybe a second, second and a half, two seconds, both of our hands are on the baton, right? For a moment, both of our hands are on the baton. Now, there's a transition that's taking place from him to me. He's handing that baton off. There's a transition that takes place within the book of Acts that's happening throughout redemptive history where we're going from the Old to the New, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And what we're seeing in the book of Acts is that baton pass. Does that make sense? So we're moving from Old to New, but God doesn't always change things in a second, but he changes how he orders things, how he works in the lives of his people, sometimes over time. And so what we're seeing now uh, is a transitional time. So the Holy Spirit does not always come upon people and give them the gift of tongues like he did in Acts chapter 2. We would be silly to say, that's, since it happened then, that's the way it happens every time. No, that was necessary for that particular time period. The Holy Spirit does not always come upon people through the laying on of hands. In fact, oftentimes, as you'll see in Romans chapter 8 in a moment, the Holy Spirit is what is necessary for us to believe. But in this particular case, what we're seeing is something take place during that baton pass. So it would be silly for you to take a picture of my teammate and I both holding a baton at the same time and say, I've learned something about track today, and that is relay races are run with two people both holding the baton and running around together. That's not that you're taking a picture of something that takes place. Did you like that? I thought it was a pretty graceful run, actually. I don't know where that came from, but I had a little bit of pep in my step. You're really laughing. Um, but... To take a picture of that little moment and say, that's exactly how a relay race is run, would be wrong. We're just taking a place of a little moment of a longer race. The baton has to be passed. So this moment in Acts is a transitional moment. Acts is a transitional book. And so to say, well, I see it happen in Acts chapter 8, so that's the way it's going to happen in 2019, would be foolish. Because this is descriptive and not prescriptive. And so in order for somebody to even be saved... To even understand, to even want Jesus, to even have any desire to be saved, that's a work of the Spirit in and of itself. It's not just that somebody wakes up one day and says, I think I need Jesus. I think that would be good. So if you look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, you read this. Paul says this, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay, how do I know if he dwells in me? Well, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 
Okay, so there's, there is nobody who belongs to Jesus who is a believer in Christ but doesn't have that spirit. What we're seeing in Acts chapter 8 is more of an anomaly than it is the norm. Anyone who belongs to Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit. Anybody who wanted to come to Christ, who said, I need to change my life, who says, I believe in the gospel, I accept grace, that's all a work of the Holy Spirit in your mind, in your heart, changing the way that you interpret the world and see yourself so that you can understand and believe the gospel. So that was all a massive sidestep, massive, probably too long, but a massive sidestep to help you understand that what you're seeing here is descriptive, but not necessarily prescriptive. We shouldn't think, okay, my friend just got saved, but I hope one day she receives the Holy Spirit. If your friend is saved, your friend has the Holy Spirit. If you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not saved. Those two things go together and hand in hand. Now back to Acts chapter 8. Hope that was helpful and not more confusing. In Acts chapter 8, uh, the apostles Peter and John come down to Samaria because they know that these, uh, these people, like I said, had not received the Holy Spirit. They were praying that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And so they lay their hands on them and they do receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, Simon sees how they receive the Holy Spirit and wants the ability to do that. So he does what he would have done to any other magician and offers them money. Now, something you can see like, how could he do this offering money for the Holy Well, he's not trying to buy the Holy Spirit. Magicians would do this. Wow, bro, that trick's really cool. Tell me how to do it. I want to be able to do it. Hey, how much is it worth to you? It's just a business transaction. So it's not that he, that, that Simon necessarily thinks he can buy God. It does show how Simon viewed Peter and John and Philip. Just another bunch of magicians. Right? Because he's treating them like saying, oh, you do cool tricks. That's way cooler than the tricks I can do. So here's some money. Let's, maybe we can, can, can we do this? Can you show me how to do this? Pray that I would be able to do this as well. Because I want to be able to do that. But you'll notice this. Simon never asks for the Holy Spirit for himself. Right? He never says, wow, look at these Samaritan Christians. Look at how their lives are changed. Look at how they're, they, they have a new look on life. They have a love for Christ. It seems that the Holy Spirit's at work in them. I want that too. He doesn't want the Holy Spirit for himself. He just wants to be able to give it to other people. Why? Because he thinks it's really cool that Peter and John can do that, and he would like to be just as cool of a magician. So he never wants it for himself. He just wants the ability to give it. Their ability to do this trick, that's what he wants, instead of the life transformation that comes as a result of the Holy Spirit. So he has an obvious ulterior motive. So Peter rebukes him pretty strongly. Verse 20, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness. Pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. And Simon answers and says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. The title of the sermon is False Positive. False positive. When we hear or use the term false positive, it's usually related to a test result of some sort, right? That for whatever reason, incorrectly shows a condition to be present when it really isn't. Don't eat a poppy seed bagel on your way to the drug test at your new job. It's not going to work out. Why? You're going to run the risk of what? Having a 
false positive. Okay, it happened to a family member of mine. It's kind of laughable, my family member of mine being, <laughs> being told, well, drugs showed up in your system, when in reality it wasn't drugs, it was just a poppy seed bagel. That's laughable within my family, but it's hardly a laughing matter when it comes to eternity. Right? Like, there's a lot more at stake here than just, oh, maybe you can fill the cup again in a week and it'll come up different. Like, there's a lot more at stake here than just that. You don't want to fall victim to a false positive when it comes to eternity, thinking you're saved when that may not be the case. But that's what we see here with Simon. We see a lot of reasons to believe that Simon himself was a false positive, that he himself would have thought he was saved, but in reality shows us really, really important reasons that we're going to look at in a moment as to why he is not. And the reason we're doing that is twofold. One, it's in the text. But here's the other thing that's really sad, but it's replete throughout the scriptures. Some who think they are saved will be eternally saved lost. It's a sad truth. But some who think they are saved will be eternally lost. And up until Peter's rebuke, I would venture to say that Simon looked like everyone else who was there, who was a genuine believer, right? It's hard to tell two seeds apart. But I think looking back on Simon's case, there are at least four what I'm calling today false positives that show us where Simon really was. And so as we do that, I want to not just look at Simon, but also look at ourselves, right? 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 says to examine ourselves, to test whether we are in the faith. That's not saying walk around in fear, see if you lost your salvation. Not at all. But Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians saying, hey, every once in a while, examine yourselves. Make sure your heart is right. Make sure why you know you're saved is really based in something sure and true and not just an experience or just something that you think has happened. Because you don't want a false positive when it comes to your standing with the Lord. So quite frankly, let's look at Simon and let's hope and pray that we'd not be like him. Four false positives that will keep you from Jesus. Here are the false positives in Simon's life. Things that maybe would make him feel like he's in when in reality he's actually not. False positive number one, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm kind of a big deal, otherwise known as pride. Simon thought highly of himself going into this whole ordeal. Uh, he's walking around feeling pretty good about himself. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 9. Um, there was a man named Simon saying that he himself was somebody great. Uh, verse 10 says that people paid attention to him from the least to the greatest and said, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, you might thank me for my sermon. Many of you do, and that's super kind and very encouraging. And I would likely awkwardly thank you back and tell you how kind it was for you to encourage me in that way. That's one thing for us to encourage one another. If you were to come up to me after my sermon and say, we're pretty convinced you're God, uh, I would not awkwardly but clearly look at you and say, pretty sure I'm not. Like, not at all. Not a thing. I'm not God. But Simon doesn't do that. Simon allows people to call him God or the power of the great or someone who is great. Simon sees himself as kind of a big deal. Simon may not be even trying to deceive people. Uh, this was the case with a lot of charlatan magicians back then. Simon may like legitimately believe that he was God or like God. He might be very sincere. Why do you let them call you God? 
because it's my name. He, he might be very sincere in letting people do that, but he's still sincerely wrong, and it shows you his view of himself. The fact that Simon allowed people to treat him this way is a tremendous indicator of how he viewed himself, and he thought he was kind of a big deal and liked when others did too. And he had developed quite a following and enjoyed that as well. Why am I calling that a false positive? Well, because Simon either thinks he's God or thinks he's like God or kind of a big deal in some way, and therefore sees himself as being baptized and following Philip as really just a great guy getting better. Right? This is just a matter of improving. It's not changing from death to life, from lost to found, from unsaved to saved. It's just kind of a little bit of improvement on a guy who's really already doing really great. And the fact of this, and inf- the fact of the matter is this, an inflated view of ourselves is all it takes to block us from accurately seeing our need for Jesus. If we have an inflated view of ourselves, who we are, how we roll, it will block us from seeing our need for Christ. That's why Paul says what he does in Galatians 6 and verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. See, if you're clinging to your pride like it is apparent that Simon is, if you hold on to who you are, if you hold on to your great name, your great record, it is literally impossible to be saved. If you're holding on to who you are, to, to, to what you've done, to, 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 to something that you think you're kind of a big deal, that's going to stand in the way of you embracing Christ. James chapter 4 and verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And as long as Simon believed he was God or like God or nearly God, he couldn't come to a right view of himself in order to be saved. People have to see themselves as lost, as as helpless, as weak, as unable, as inept, as hell-bound, as hell-deserving before they can be saved. Not just seeing Jesus as like, I think he'd be a good addition to my life. Things are going pretty well. I would like things to be even better. So, I mean, Jesus seems like it would make sense. I'll just add him into my existing awesomeness. That's not how it works. When we think highly of ourselves, we do attract the attention of, of God in his opposition. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. For people who think much of them, they don't think much of God. If you think much of yourself, you don't think much of Jesus. Pride is an easy sin to indulge in, though, because it doesn't cost you a lot to indulge in pride. It doesn't cost you your reputation. It doesn't cost you prestige. It doesn't cost you wealth or some of the many costs that accompany so many other sins. Pride isn't always as ugly as other sins. You don't smell pride like you smell drunk. Uh, You don't get caught with pride like you get caught in bed with someone. It's not as apparent or as off-putting as other sins. It seems to be able to fit right in or at least can fit right in, especially to someone who's living in the way of the world. And here's another thing with pride. Here's the thing that we see with Simon. Pride often masks itself as virtuous. So it's not just that pride is hard to detect. Sometimes pride, it's not only just that it hides really well, but it shows itself as actually something that can be apparently good. Simon had a following. He thought he was a big deal, thought he was God or like God, had a, had a big following to back it up. Pride can mask itself as 
virtuous. King Herod looked like a man of integrity as he beheaded John the Baptist. But it was his pride that drove him to do that. The pride of the Pharisees made them look holy. But in reality, they rejected the one who is the holiest of holies, Jesus Christ. It looked like zeal for God among the Jewish authorities. But they executed the very Son of God. But it was pride. But it masked itself as zeal. Look back in the book of Genesis. Pride cost us the Garden of Eden. Pride doomed Sodom and Gomorrah. It cost Nebuchadnezzar his reason, Rehoboam the kingdom, Uzziah his health, Haman his life. And here it cost Simon the opportunity to truly be saved. When faced with the opportunity to believe in Jesus, Simon doesn't see his need for Jesus because he sees himself as kind of a big deal. So all he sees is an opportunity to expand his repertoire of magic tricks, which brings us to the second false positive, false positive number two, which I'm calling I saw the sign. Miracles or rituals or the like. See, they all saw the great works that Philip was doing. Simon and everyone else saw that. But look at verse 12, speaking of the Samaritan Christians. When they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So in other words, they saw the same signs that Simon did, but then they went beyond those signs to what those signs were pointing to, which was Jesus, to what they were pointing to, which was the kingdom of God and their need for a savior and that provision in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, it says, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Simon is different. He, he, he says he believed. He was even baptized like everyone else. But where does he go? He goes right back to being amazed by what? The signs and the miracles. He is obsessed with the signs. He's not moving past the sign to what it's pointing to. It's like he sees a sign. He's amazed at that sign. He believes. He's baptized. But he can't get beyond it. He goes right back to that sign and he stays there. Everyone else has moved beyond the sign. The sign was pointing to a destination and they're like, we want to go to there. They go to Jesus. They go to get their life transformed. They are saved. And Simon comes back and he can't get beyond that sign. Yes, yeah, Simon was baptized. But he couldn't get over the sign. Couldn't get over the miracles. The sad thing is he would have looked back on having seen that sign or maybe having been baptized, right? I have the, the sign of baptism on my life and thought, I'm in. I'm in. I, they were, I, I'm, I'm in. I saw the power of God at work. I was baptized like everyone else, so I'm in. But in reality, his heart was never changed. And I think we can be like that sometimes. Maybe we were at a very... Moving event, we saw a video of youth camp. Maybe we're at a retreat or a church service or something like that. We may have been, maybe we've been privy to God acting in a powerful way in someone's life, seeing someone healed or an amazing answer to prayer. And we look at that and think, I know God, I'm saved because I was close enough to watch him work. But in reality, maybe we never became anything more than a spectator. Because we might have been close enough to watch God work, but... The work hasn't been done in our own lives. And so we need to be careful how we look back at the signs in our own lives. I'm not saying we don't look back with great joy. 
I'm not saying we don't go back with great gratitude and, 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 and thankfulness for what the Lord has done in our lives. I'm just saying when we look back at the sign as proof positive that we're walking with the Lord, that could be a false positive. I know I'm saved because I've been baptized. I know I'm saved because I prayed a certain prayer. It was at that event where so many were saved, whatever it may be. Signs point to something greater than themselves. Baptism points to the reality of someone being having already been immersed into Christ and being very different as a result. It's not about dry to wet. It's about death to life, lost to found. That's a sign that points to something infinitely greater. Communion is a sign that reminds us of a greater reality than juice and gluten-free bread. It's there not just to reassure us of, of our salvation, but to remind us of what Paul said was of first importance, the reality that it points to, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. Signs are good as long as we move past them. They're directional. They tell us where we need to go or where we ought not to go. The people in Acts 8 and verse 12 did that. Simon in Acts 8 and verse 13 did not. False positive number three, I can afford it. Or merit-based salvation. So again, the fact that Simon offered money for the ability to, to give the Holy Spirit through the, the laying on of hands shows how he viewed what was going on there. He viewed it as another magic trick. He viewed, he viewed Peter and John as, as fellow magicians. Hey, hook me up, bro. I want to be able to do that. That's really cool. How much is it worth to you? I got this money. He never saw his need for the Holy Spirit himself. He just wanted to be able to give it to other people. And so he offers them money. His view of God was as a, as a commodity for personal gain, which shows how lost he was. The fact that he offers money means he doesn't see himself as what he needs to see himself as, which is bankrupt. He doesn't see himself as in need. He sees himself as having the ability to get what God is giving. Like, I can, I can, I can pay money for this. And while he might look back and say, I was so willing to get the Holy Spirit that I was willing to pay, like, cash money. I was willing to give of what I had. I was willing to give my money to get that. That would prove to be a false positive in his life because he thinks that he is able to get what God is giving. He thinks it's within the realms of possibility for him to reach out and get it or pay for it or otherwise earn it. It's not that he's so into the gospel that he's willing to pay for it. It's that he thinks what the disciples have is, is actually so affordable, so cheap, that it could be bought with mere money. And so Peter's discerning, right? He knows Simon's heart isn't right, and that's why he says what he says in verse 20 and 21. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. I think free grace is a hard concept for us to really comprehend. Really free anything is a hard concept for us to under, uh, yeah, comprehend or understand. I mean, what in life is free, right? Everything comes with a cost. And if somebody comes up to you and says, no, really, this is totally free. If you're anything like me, your first response, get out of here. Like, my first response is suspicion, not like, oh, wow, that's great. You're totally taking time out of your day to offer me this free offer? Thank you for being so kind and loving. I'm like, no. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch, bro. And so if you're offering this to me for free, there's got to be some fine print that is free for now, but I'm 
signing away one of my children. Or it's, it's, it's free for now, but I'm subscribed for, like, I love the ones that are free, but you have to give them your credit card. It's like, that's not a sign right there. Like, this is not perpetually free. This is free for now, but then you're subscribed for the next 39 months or, or something like that. We don't trust free. Nothing in our life is free. So when, when we're presented with free grace, it's naturally a hard concept for us to comprehend. There's got to be some catch, some fine print, something in section 9, paragraph 14, subsection Roman, num, Roman numeral 2 or something like that. And so when someone comes along offering free grace, it, I think it takes literally a work of the Holy Spirit for us to even comprehend that concept. Because we're just suspicious of things that are free. I said this a while ago, but even, even Christians who've been walking with the Lord for a long time, we still view God and life just kind of in a transactional way. We don't mean to, but we, and we love Jesus, but... We sing things like, Jesus paid it all, right? All to him I owe. We, we don't get free grace, right? I mean, even in our best of intentions, it's like, Jesus paid it all, but I still kind of owe him my life. It's like, and I know what that means. I know the heart motivation behind it. I'm not saying feel guilty when you sing it or roll your eyes, although I've probably ruined that hymn for you now for life. But sorry, not sorry. But, but when you say Jesus paid it all, but then all to him I owe, it's like, did he really pay it all? Because really, the Bible would say we owe him nothing. Because we can't repay that debt. It's free grace. But we just can't help but think in terms of transaction. Even our gratitude is expressed towards God in transaction. Jesus paid it all. I owe him everything. And Jesus is like, see previous line. I paid it all. And so when God comes along offering grace, free grace, it really takes a work of God, the Holy Spirit, in our lives to say, yes, I'll take it, I need it, I want it, I'm not suspicious of God, I'm not suspicious of the offer, I believe it is what it is, I believe in Jesus, I believe that he has met my need that I have in myself, he's met that need, satisfied God's debt, through his death for me. That takes a work of God, and that takes a work of God that was not happening in Simon's life. As he took out his wallet and said, what's it going to, how much, how much is it going to take? That's why we read things like we do in Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has what? No money. Come, buy, and eat. It's taking economics and just like chucking it out the window. It's a totally, totally different economy when it comes to God. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And finally, false positive number four, I bought fire insurance. The difference between fearing hell and loving Jesus. Peter's harsh rebuke of Simon doesn't bring about a change in Simon's heart. Peter's genuine call for Simon to repent is unheeded as well. Simon's response is only this. Look at verse 24. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon's response shows he's only concerned with the temporal effects of his sin, but not his eternal standing with God. It's like Peter says a lot of things that are going to happen. May your silver perish with you. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. And Simon's response is not have mercy upon me, a sinner. Is not tell me how to be saved. It's like, wow, all that stuff you just said sounds pretty hard. Super painful. Pray, you seem to have an in with God. 
you do the hand thing. So pray that those things would not happen to me. Simon heard Peter's warning, the prophetic judgment of the wrath to come, but he doesn't repent. He doesn't change. He doesn't confess. His heart is unmoved, except for the fact that he's scared to death of death. And so he responds by asking them to pray that those things wouldn't happen to him. So in other words, he wants what I'm calling here fire insurance. He is definitely interested in being relieved of the penalty of his sin. But here's the thing. Fearing hell is not the same thing as wanting heaven. Uh, Fearing hell is not the same thing as loving Jesus. I mean, you could talk apart from God, like we could set God totally aside, and you could go up to somebody, raw pagan, atheist, and just say, listen, if I were to tell you that there was a lake of fire that burns with sulfur for eternity, and that there's no means of escape, and that you were going there, would you want to go there? I'm pretty sure they'd be like, no. Right? Like, it doesn't, that's not a, that's not a spiritual thing, that's just like, I don't like being burned, would not want to be burned for eternity in a fire that won't be consumed in a way that I would never be able to escape. Like, that's just common sense. Would you like to burn forever? Let me think. Actually, I'm done thinking. No, I would would so not want to burn forever. But then for you to look at that person and say, this person, I mean, I I heard I love Jesus. Did you? No, I didn't hear I love Jesus. I heard I didn't want to burn forever. Fearing hell, fearing punishment, in and of itself is not the same thing as loving Jesus. Now, God might use one as a means to another. God might get our attention through the reality of hell, through the reality of the wrath of God being poured upon people, and might get our attention to show us our need for a Savior. But just being scared of hell does not necessarily mean that somebody is saved. There are people who are dying who are scared of hell and go there. So being scared of hell in and of itself does not mean that we automatically love Jesus. Simon was scared of the the results or the consequences of his sin. But it didn't bring about a need for Jesus. It didn't bring about a love for Christ. It didn't bring about a, wow, tell me how I can be saved. It was just, hey, do me a favor. Put in a word with that guy to make sure these things don't happen to me because I don't want those things to happen to me. But at the end of the day, as shaken as he was, he was thinking about what? Himself. didn't turn his gaze and avert his gaze toward Christ. It didn't change what he wanted to be centered on Jesus. It didn't show him his need for a savior. He was just like, how do I not burn? How do I make sure these things don't happen to me? Just pray that those things don't happen to me. So, trying to scare the hell out of somebody doesn't necessarily scare the heaven into them. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 22 says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. You can't be scared into heaven. No one runs into heaven just, where are you going? I don't know, just not, not to hell. The people who go to heaven love Jesus Christ. They're not perfect. I mean, we, I, we can't belabor that point enough. It's not about performance. It's not about behavior. But it is about a love for Jesus Christ, not just a hatred for hell. It's a love for Jesus Christ, that they hear about what Jesus has done for them, and their heart is moved. 
That they desire to live a life that is pleasing to him. How do I, hey, how do I please God in this area of my life? Wow, I wonder how, how do I work my job in a way that's pleasing to him? Is there a way that I can talk to my neighbors that is really pleasing to Christ? Is there a way that you start looking at everything through that, that lens, that screen of, ooh, how, how can I be pleasing to God in this? Is there a way that I can be pleasing to God in this? If so, I want to do it. And we strive to be living a life that shows not our hatred of hell, but our love for Jesus. And Simon lacked that. And I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's really hard to tell two seeds apart, especially for me. And so God allows the wheat and the weeds to coexist. But in the end, they will be separated one from another. And Simon's a sad example to us of one who missed it, of one who didn't repent, of one who gave his name to the term simony, which refers to the buying and selling of ecclesiastical spiritual goods and offices forever. And so what's the application for us other than don't be like that guy. Let's close in prayer. What do we do with this now that we've learned the truth from God's word? Well, we look at ourselves as 2 Corinthians 13.5 says to examine ourselves to test whether we're in the faith. And we make sure that what we're looking at, that that which gives us our assurance, that which gives us peace about being in a good standing with God, is not something that in the end is really going to be a false positive. That it's not because uh, we thought ourselves good enough. It's not because we thought ourselves able to achieve this, so we're glad we reached out to God and he's so, he's so much better for having us. It's because we just see ourselves as bankrupt and in need, and we know that Jesus met that need. And so we live our lives in a way that would show our love for Christ and want to tell others that Jesus is worth loving that his mercy really is free, like legit free, like it doesn't come with strings attached, but he lavishes us with grace and mercy and that we who've walked with the Lord can say, no, it's, it's for real. It really is free. It really doesn't come at a cost. You don't really have to pay back this later. He really did pay it all. We really owe him nothing. And God is satisfied and loves me and likes me and grows me into being more like him and less like myself. And we share that message with people, not because we're scared of hell, but because we love Jesus. And because we don't want them to fall victim to being a false positive. Or looking back on their life and thinking, my good outweighs my bad. False positive. Or looking back on their life and thinking, I was such a good fill-in-the-blank. Friend, mother, daughter, brother, sister. False positive. So it's my hope and my prayer that the reading of God's word would inform our minds and our hearts and change us to make sure that we are looking back on things that are really worth putting our hope and trust in when it comes to our assurance of salvation and where we're pointing other people to. Let's not be good people just trying to be better. Let's be lost people who were saved by the free, boundless, matchless grace and mercy of God and let's tell other people about them, hoping that the Lord would do a work in their heart just like he does in ours.
Father in heaven, that is our prayer and our hope as we look to your word today. Uh, We desire, Lord, for you to continue to work among us, even as you have. And Lord, we pray that your mercy and your grace uh, would come upon people's lives even now. For those who don't know you, Lord, would you cause them to see their need for you and to see you as trustworthy and faithful and true and worth, uh, worth putting their trust in. That they would not fear you, that they would not hear of free grace and think, Psh, I don't know about that, or probably not worth it. But that you would change their heart, that the Holy Spirit, that you, Holy Spirit, would work in their lives and in their minds so that they would love you and know you now. And Lord, for those of us who do love you, for those of us who do know you, grow us in our gratitude, grow us in our thankfulness for your mercy and how it's acted and changed our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.